Welcome to House of Data, a show exploring how data is influencing decisions at the most ambitious companies in housing. I'm your host, Alex Bridgman. Together, we will dive into how housing market participants are ingesting, organizing, and making decisions using data and the competitive advantages that follow. I am the Director of Data Strategy at Altos Research, owned by HW Media, and we supply some of the most dynamic companies in housing with unique intelligence across every housing market nationwide. You can learn more about Altus Research and this podcast by going to altusresearch.com or by sending me an email at alex at hwmedia.com. My guest today is Brian Judes, National VP of Product Design at Taylor Morrison, a large national home builder. Brian describes himself as a data junkie and his team supports 19 divisions across the country with key data insights. In this episode, we discuss telling a story with the data and using experience to provide more context, how data informs product decisions, and communicating with data. Please enjoy this episode with Brian Judes. I've been looking forward to this episode for a while. I enjoyed your other podcast on uh, shower design and like little, like kind of walking through a home and talking about all the different design choices and how they've changed over time. So I'm excited to hear about some of those changes and how maybe data influences those as well. But um, before going into all that, would love to um, have, like, kind of walk through your career to this point and what your role at Taylor Morrison has looked like so far. Well, thanks, Alex, uh, for the invitation today. It's great to talk to you. I'm happy to say I've been involved in residential uh, design, uh, architectural, and engineering um, for the last 27 years. And uh, I've been bounced back and forth between the consultant side of the business, serving all the home builders as a consulting architect and consulting structural engineer, and then working inside the home builders companies as well. So both sides of that equation and uh, enjoyed both immensely and about split half and half over the last 27 years. Uh, the three home builders I've worked for have been Shea Homes and Meritage Homes and now at Taylor Morrison. Uh, my role at Terrell Morrison today is the Vice President of Product Design, and I'm the first one in that seat at Taylor Morrison, uh, the seventh largest builder in the country, and uh, working with all 19 divisions from Seattle down to Sarasota, trying to optimize our products, and that's creating more efficiencies uh, to reduce costs. It's creating more design to uh, increase consumer appeal and uh, streamline our operations and reduce cycle times. What kind of design optimizations are you looking at this year? Like what's been most notable and, and sticks out in your mind? Well, since the pandemic of several years ago, the number one thing has been work from home. And uh, overnight that happened um, back in the spring of 2020. And uh, almost all of us were forced to work from home for a period of time. Um, and today, still over half of the country works from home at least part of the week. So because of that, we need to accommodate work from home in our new products. A lot of existing homes and um, even some new homes today still do not have spaces for people to work from home. And, and that's a miss, in my opinion. We really need to be able to provide this. Sometimes it can be a very small alcove, uh, two-foot deep by five feet wide, it's just a small little alcove carved out of a space somewhere so somebody can put a desk and a chair 
and have some level of privacy to work from home. And then it goes up to the traditional 10 by 12 home office um, where you can have doors on it and have privacy and have that full space. So it's a full spectrum today from 10 square feet up to 120 square feet. But wherever we can, we're providing that in our new designs to accommodate the needs of today's consumers. And what kind of data are you looking at to help inform some of these design decisions? We get good data. It, it comes in many different forms, uh, surveys, polls, focus groups. Uh, John Burns does a good job of providing us data. They have their monthly surveys that they send out. And the last one that I saw relative to this issue of work from home had to do with the size. Um, as I mentioned, traditionally, the home office was 10 by 10 or 10 by 12. And it was a bit of a showpiece prior to the pandemic. They didn't get used that often. And you'd float a desk in the middle of the space and you'd have a credenza on the side or behind you. And it was a very beautiful showpiece of an office, but really not that functional or wasn't used that often. That all changed with the pandemic. And the recent survey from John Burns shows that most of today's consumers prefer a smaller pocket office, if you will, something more like seven by nine or eight by seven. So we're talking 50 to 60 square feet instead of 100 to 120. And what they wanna do with that other space, the leftover, if we shrink the work from home space, what do we do? They want us to put the rest in the great room, in the kitchen, in the primary bath, or in storage. They re repurpose that space into something else. They think the traditional office is just wasted space. It doesn't need to be that big based on the recent surveys. Yeah, I remember as a kid going to you know, a friend's house and seeing an office, and it looked like it hadn't been used, but you're right, it was big, it had big you know, bookshelves and all that other stuff, and um, clearly it wasn't meant to work in, or maybe the, the doors were kind of a double door with glass, so it wasn't very insulating, like you, the sound would come through really easily. Um, so definitely noticed that trend, and I know that um, in thinking about my own home that I'd love to buy one day, that I would love to, that office feature. Like that's definitely something top of mind for me as well. Yeah, they're, they're very beautiful, um, th those offices, and they do function well. It's just with today's affordability crisis, uh, most of our buyers today can't afford that extra 120 square feet. Um, they don't have the luxury to be able to do that because it's more important to deliver bedroom and bathroom counts, right, to be able to house their families. Those are necessities, um, must-haves, and a nice, big, beautiful home office is, you know, a want um, or something I'd like to have. And you talked about how um, that, so that if, if, if consumers today want a smaller office, they'd rather see that square footage used elsewhere. So what are, what are like the one or two other locations in a home where they're trying to add space to rather than take away? The, the two most important spaces in most surveys that come up are the kitchen and the primary bath. So repurposing any or reusing any additional space into either one of those two areas of the home um, is very beneficial and effective. So it could be a bigger kitchen island. It could be a bigger pantry in the kitchen. It could just be more countertop space for food prep and work um, in the kitchen or in the primary bath. It could be going from a four-piece bath to a five-piece bath, 
providing that tub and shower. Um, a little more openness uh, across from the vanity, a little more circulation space, just a little more spa-like feel in that primary bath. So you can't go wrong with either of those two places if you're going to have some extra space to spend. So, yeah, with especially with kitchens, it seems maybe it could be in my head. So I'm kind of curious what you think, but um, it seems like kitchen islands are becoming you know, very standard in in homes and even a lot of new apartment buildings that you know previously might not have had them. Is that is that just in my head, or is that a trend that you've seen with kitchen islands becoming more popular, more standard, perhaps across the board? Uh, they definitely are more standard than ever before. Um, the trend really started, I think, back with Chip and Joanna Gaines and the Fixer Upper TV series on HGTV, um, which hasn't been uh, that long ago. Um, but Joanna really started this concept of these big, long, extended kitchen islands um, as part of her designs. And a lot of people watch that show, and it's really taken off. Um, I would say well over 90% of our homes today at Taylor Morrison have kitchen islands in them, and that includes small, narrow, affordable townhome product. And we still have kitchen islands in them. So it's definitely a very strong majority, and it's not just Taylor Morrison, it's the whole industry uh, providing these large kitchen islands. Uh, the big debate today seems to be around the placement of the sink. And there's not enough data to show um, if something's going to change, but there's a start of more talk around taking the sink out of the island and putting the sink somewhere else. And some recent surveys indicate that that's a buyer preference. Uh, but today's inventory out there clearly has the sink in the island more often than it's not. And uh, that's what's out there today, so that's what people are buying. And a lot of people, I think, still prefer that. But there is some recent discussion around where's the best place to put the sink. So let's take that debate or discussion as an example. So where where are you using data to lean to one side or one decision over the other? We know the inventory out there, and we at Taylor Morrison, we spend a bit of time benchmarking ourselves and our competitors. So I know what everybody's doing with kitchen islands, how big they are, and what percentage of them have sinks versus not having sinks. So with that data, we know the supply and the inventory. Then we need to follow the demand and see what's what's selling on our products as well as what's selling with our competitors' products to see what the consumer preferences are. And that just takes time and effort uh, to compile enough data over enough time to, to have a strong um, confidence level of, of making a change. Um, but right now, the majority of our products and the industry have islands, and most of them have sinks in so I, I'm curious to hear how you're tracking and organizing this data. Is this something that's more that's done more by case by case where, hey, we want to look at kitchen islands. So let's look at all of our competitors, all the different recent developments in the last you know 18 months to see what they're doing. Or is there some kind of ongoing tracking you're doing where any new development, you do the research and you there's like a bunch of different data points you're trying to track across all these different floor plans and you're tallying them up kind of as they're built or perhaps there's a mixture of the two yeah it's it's more of the latter um, 
it's an ongoing effort here um, that we continue to benchmark and monitor our products as well as our competitor products in all 19 markets that we operate at all different price points that we operate. So we don't want to be comparing a, a high-end price point kitchen island that's 15 feet long with a townhome product, right? So you have to partition it out um, to make sure that you're comparing apples to apples. But it's an ongoing effort, and kitchen islands are on that long list of things that we're tracking. And so maybe a more basic question, how do you get this data? So if you look at a, if you know that there's a new development that's been built, are you able to find the floor plans online? Or are you just looking through the Zillow listings and kind of tagging things as you see them in, in photos or the floor plans if they posted them? Where does that data come from? Yeah, it's a very manual and time intensive process today, unfortunately. Um, so we're looking online and, and other sources of data and information, but very manual. Hopefully in the near future, we'll be able to use artificial intelligence to automate more of that process or create some sort of databases as an industry or as a builder um, where we have more accessibility to this, that it's quicker and less labor intensive. But today it's primarily manual, looking online. That's a, that's a big task. Are there any, are there any helpful data providers for this type of information? Uh, not that we've seen yet. So everybody's evolving. Um, all the, all the different providers today that are out there helping service the residential home building industry are evolving their processes and products to help us. Um, but what we're doing today is proprietary and internal, Taylor Morrison and unique. So there's nobody out there that currently has it. Um, so we created ourselves. Gotcha. Yeah. Cause I'm thinking of, uh, you know, Altos, you know, our active for sale data set. Well, we can tell you if there's, you know, how many bathrooms there are, but we couldn't tell you if there's a, you know, a footstool in the shower or if there's a door to the shower, it's just an open glass kind of walkway into the shower. We, there's pieces like that, that we granularity that we won't get to, um, that, obviously you're looking for is, is very specific and it's probably hard for a, a data provider to build a, a larger product around and make that investment to create it. Exactly. So that it's, it's a silver lining is that we are able to customize it to identify the things that are most important to us on what they might be in the bathrooms or in the kitchen or indoor and outdoor spaces. So, we customize it and it's evolving over time as well. And sometimes it may change based on a location um, or it may change based on a price point or some other market uh, update that uh, they want specific in a certain market. They want specifically to know this, you know, when you have volume space in a house, two story clear space, where is it best provided? Is it gonna be in the foyer? Is it? Um, at the dining area or is it in the great room or some combination of that. So some markets have very particular items that they want us to research on like volume space and uh, other markets just use our generic overall uh, research tool that we have here at Taylor Morrison. So looking at the, the data set you've compiled to this point, I, I imagine there are new data points over time that you're, that you're wanting to add and start tracking, but maybe you haven't done that 
retroactively. There's, you know, you've been tracking for many years, but only now you actually want to start tracking where is the sink? Is it in the island or is it not? Um, do you try to go back and backfill data if you if it's possible for you to go do? Typically, we don't go back. It just continues to grow. But everything we do is dated, obviously, as the market evolves. So there are certainly expiration dates on some of our research reports. And when they get to be a year or two or more old, um, they're, they're not as valid anymore as the market changes. So they, they, they lose their applicability when they reach certain uh, expiration dates. So we're always constantly updating and evolving. Um, as builders bring new communities to market every day and communities get closed and retired every day. And uh, sometimes the products stay static and sometimes the products are changing. Uh, we all know that the uh, average square footage is continuing to shrink um, and that's happening. So products are shrinking um, as we go forward and all the builders are doing what they can to uh, try to address the affordability crisis that we're in today. When you say community is retired, what do you mean by that? Once the last home is sold, that last lot is sold within a community, um, the community's closed out and retired. And sometimes those products are rolled forward into a new community, depending on the builder. And other times that product gets retired and it's replaced with a newer product, like a newer model of a car. Um, so average duration is probably in the three-year time period roughly, plus or minus, but most builders operate in a size and a scale where communities come and go every three years. And it's, it's happening every day, it's happening every week and every month that communities are opening and communities are closing. So from the 19 divisions that you manage, the 19 areas and markets that you focus on, um, what kind of questions are you getting from your team that they're hoping to use data to answer? We're looking for what the consumer is, is desiring in bedroom and bathroom count and square footages and price points. So that's the overall view. Uh, but then, as we mentioned earlier, we get much more granular and we get into the size of the kitchen islands and the fixture counts and the primary bathrooms and, and more granular than that to try and understand um, where the, the trade-offs are because we, not everybody can afford everything, right? And we have to work inside these cost constraints and price point constraints that we have today um, due to the high interest rates and inflationary pressures and everything else that we can't deliver everything in any product. Um, we have more freedom in the bigger, more expensive products. We have much less freedom in the small, affordable products. So we have to make decisions on what to include and what not to include. Um, so we're looking at data and research and surveys and um, customer behavior on trying to help us decide what are the design features that have the most value for today's consumer. And it varies by different areas in the country, of course, and different price points. And when you're putting together one of these research reports and you have a couple of data sets that you're pulling from, how do you take that data and tell a, a cohesive story around it? It's pretty self-evident, actually. Uh, it's, it's quite simple. Um, if we take an example of a, a series, let's say we're going to work in the mid-range, so a move-up series, second level or tier two series of products, 
and let's say it's a 40 foot wide home, which is the most common chassis width in the United States for production housing. So a tier two 40 foot wide, and let's say it's in Texas somewhere. And uh, the data will clearly show that the, the market has about um, two thirds are ranch homes, single story homes, and one third are two story homes. That's what's selling out there. And the four bedroom, two bath is going to be the most common. So four bedrooms and two baths, single story home, by far the most common in the Texas market um, is this example. And tier two, we have a certain price point, and then we can decide how many square feet we can build in that box and what features we can put in that box. But the, the data clearly shows the, the overall, all of our competitors, as well as our plans, and paints a pretty clear picture. You just have to make decisions on what we can and can't include based on some cost constraints that we want to apply so that we can deliver the product at a certain price. I, I imagine that presents having the cost constraint and size constraint. I imagine that forces you to get pretty creative. Do you think that's a more fun way to design a house than fewer constraints where you can build and add whatever you want and you're you're kind of forced to make these decisions, like where does that extra space go? It, it feels more like a puzzle than kind of a um, an all-out design. Is that how you interpret these or how you feel about these designs? Yes, definitely. I think if you're designing a, a big, large custom home with no constraints on size and scale and features, um, it's, it's quite easy um, to be able to do that. When you're designing a very small, um, affordable tier one townhome product that's 20 foot wide, um, it's very challenging to get those three bedrooms, two and a half baths, and some work from home space and a kitchen island and a walk-in pantry in that narrow little product. So it is, like you said, Alex, a bit of a puzzle, um, but it's a challenge. And uh, when you are that small and in that tight of a box, there's, there's very limited freedom and uh, optionality so you'll see a, a lot of commonality across all the competitors because there's only so many ways to solve that puzzle when you're in a very narrow townhome product what constraints or limits do you often see with using data that's a tough question there's a lot of ways to go around that i would say first is the the data needs to be relevant um, and Sometimes it is that we get supplied with lots of data every day. We're hit with it. And uh, sometimes it's not so relevant. And that can be a distraction. So the first filter may be, does, is its relevancy? Um, is it what we're actually trying to solve the problem? Is this going to be helpful, this data set? And then, as we mentioned earlier, it needs to be current. Um, it needs to be geographically appropriate. Um, and also for the right price point. We don't want to be looking at data that's um, at a different price point than what we're operating at for a certain product. So all of that kind of ties up price point, geography, into this relevancy um, that this data needs to be. And then it's what are we going to do with it and how are we going to use it to help us. But ultimately, the goal is to deliver the best product we can at these certain price points. Um, based on what our consumers want and need today. What kind of advice do you have for other data leaders looking to use data to make better decisions? I would say persevere. Um, don't. It's not easy, right? It takes 
perseverance to continue on that path of data. Um, if it was easy, everybody would be doing it and the answers would be clearly printed on the walls and the hallways um, in, our, in our corporate uh, buildings, but it's not. It's not easy um, to find this data. We're continually striving and pushing on the envelope to try and find other sources and more current data, more relevant data. And so I would say persevere and just keep fighting the good fight to get there. Eventually we'll get there, but it's not easy. Awesome. Brian, thank you so much for coming on the House of Data podcast. Really enjoying getting to know you and, and chat with you. And I'm glad Zach was able to introduce us. Thank you, Alex. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for listening to House of Data. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving a review and introducing the show to a friend in data to help more folks discover the podcast. For more information about Altus Research and the podcast, check us out at altusresearch.com or send me an email at alex at hwmedia.com.